Father, our prayer is that our worship will not have ended, but that as we look into your word now together, you would be revealing yourself to us and summoning forth from us the praise and honor and thanks that you deserve. We ask that you would do this, Lord, and, and that you would be in the process transforming us into the image of the risen Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would be glorified and that you would make us into Christ-like people, Christ-like husbands, Christ-like wives, Christ-like parents, children who obey their parents in the Lord as is right. And Lord, we ask that you would cause this church to continue to serve others, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to serve people in the local community, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And Father, we ask that all all of this would resound to your praise. You are the one who is worthy to receive honor and glory and wisdom and power and might forever and ever. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 4. We'll be looking this morning at Revelation chapter 4. And as you make your way there, I want to describe for you God's eternal purpose in the world. God created the world and He created it as a place in which His glory would be displayed. So from the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed the man and the woman... And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, the word glory is not explicit there, but as the image and likeness of God expands over the earth through their multiplication and as they fill the earth, what they're taking with them is God's authority and God's representative image over All the earth. So God intends to fill the world with His glory. And you know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden. And then God began to work with the nation of Israel. And God's intention for bringing Israel out of Egypt into the land of promise was to put them in the land of promise like a new Adam in a new Eden with a new charge Uh, admonition, uh, responsibility to cause the borders of the land to expand so that the place in which God was known and served and worshipped and praised would grow until it covered all the dry lands. And on the way to the land of promise, as they arrived at the land of Canaan, they sent spies into the land who came back with a bad report and Moses had to intercede with the Lord and as the Lord As the Lord agrees to grant Moses' request not to destroy the nation, he, he says, I have done according to your word in pardoning the people, but as I live, the Lord declared, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And David understood this. As, as David came to the end of his life and he was praying for his son Solomon who would take the throne after him. We read in Psalm 72 verse 19 and he's speaking of the Lord here. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And we could continue through to Isaiah and to Habakkuk. And in Isaiah... 
Isaiah has this vision of God exalted, high and lifted up as king. And these, these angelic beings, like the ones we will encounter in Revelation 4, are surrounding God the Father and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then you may recall Habakkuk's prophecy. He's, he's asking the Lord why He tolerates such wickedness among the people of Israel. And the Lord says... I'm about to bring the Babylonians in judgment against them. And Habakkuk is is shocked. How could you use those more wicked to judge those who are relatively more righteous than they? And in the midst of this prophecy, Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2.14, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It doesn't always seem that way, does it? We, we look at society, we look at our culture, we look at the world. It doesn't seem like the glory of the Lord is going to cover the dry lands like the waters cover the seas. And if you find yourself thinking that way, if you find yourself looking at the world and thinking, you know, people are a lot more excited about March Madness than they are about the Lord, our day is not that different from John's day. And as we come into Revelation chapter 4, we're coming out of, we're not going to look at the letters to the seven churches today, but we're coming out of Jesus addressing these churches. And those churches, they were small, they seemed to be insignificant, they seemed to have little power against the backdrop of the broader Roman Empire. And in Revelation 4, Jesus gave to John what those churches needed. And in Revelation 4, John gives to us what we need. What this chapter gives us is a vision of God the Father seated on His throne being worshipped as He rightly deserves. That's the main point of this text. If you go out of here today and someone asks you this afternoon or maybe even on your way home, what did the preacher preach about? Your answer is in Revelation 4. God the Father is on His throne being worshipped as He rightly deserves. What this chapter does is testify to us that God is going to cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea with His glory. Look with me, if you will, at Revelation chapter 4. John tells us here in verse 1, after this, And what has immediately preceded this is Jesus had begun to speak in chapter 1 and He had kept right on speaking through chapters 2 and 3 addressing these seven churches. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Interestingly, at the end of Revelation 3, you remember Jesus is the one who is standing at the door knocking. And, And what's curious about that is that Jesus is knocking, apparently, on the door of the church in Laodicea, trying to get in. He's knocking on the door of the church. And now John sees a door open in heaven. So so the closed door is from the church, and there's an open door in heaven. And then John tells us in verse 1, "...in the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet." This takes us back to Revelation chapter 1, where in verse 10 John had written... I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a a loud voice like a trumpet. And then Jesus, the risen Christ in glory, had begun to speak to John. 
And as I said a moment ago, he spoke right through those letters to the seven churches. And so now John hears the, wor- the, the voice of Jesus again. And Jesus says there in verse 1, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. What John is going to see in chapter 4 is God the Father on the throne being worshipped as he rightly deserves. And, and we might think, how could it get any better than that? How could it get any better than John beholding the worship of the Father on the throne in heaven? And John tells us in Revelation 5, to our surprise, it can get better than that. Because in Revelation 5, what happens is the Lamb, standing as though slain, enters into the scene. And stunningly, the eyes of heaven turn from the Father. We're... They're worshiping Him and they see the Lamb and their attention is redirected to the Lamb and they begin to worship the Lamb. And then they join in the worship of the one seated on the throne and the Lamb together. So so coming out of Revelation 4, we might ask, what could add fuel to the fire of the worship in heaven? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus can as He enters into this scene in Revelation 5. And then what Jesus does is he seizes this, this scroll that the Father has and he breaks open its seals. And what that does is it unleashes a series of judgments. But Jesus taking that scroll means he has taken control of world history. And then the events that follow from this, in chapter 10, an angel brings that scroll down to John and John eats the scroll and then he begins to prophesy about how God is going to judge the wicked And deliver those who have been faithful to Him. Those who believe in Jesus. Those who hold fast to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So what we're seeing here in Revelation 4 is preparing us for the judgment and the salvation that God is going to do. This chapter is testifying to us. God reigns. God reigns. So if you come to a day, as John depicts in Revelation 11 through 13, where the righteous are being persecuted by the wicked. The vivid images of Revelation 4 are part of what the Lord is doing to preserve you through that persecution. The Lord will preserve His people, and the way He will do it is, is by means of the Holy Spirit activating the truth of God's words in our consciences. And so what we want to do is lock onto this here in Revelation 4 so that when the fires heat up, we know that God is reigning. Even as we suffer, if they fine us, if they jail us, if like the pilgrims of old, we have to seek a new place where we can worship freely, whatever may come, we want to be sustained by this vision of God reigning on the throne, being worshipped. So Jesus says to John, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And then John writes in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit. Now that phrase, in the Spirit, when John says, I was in the Spirit, only happens four times in the book of Revelation. It it happened back in chapter 1, in verse 10, when John tells us, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And and only only occurring four times, it occurs at key turning points in the book. And and so right after uh, 
John tells us he was in the Spirit in Revelation 1.10, he sees this vision of the glorified Christ who then speaks the, the letters to the seven churches that we have in chapters 2 and 3. So we could summarize Revelation 1 through 3 with the phrase, Jesus and the letters. And then it happens here in chapter 4, verse 2, where, where John is going to see the throne of God in heaven. And what's going to issue from the throne are these judgments. There will be seven seals that are opened, and then there will be seven trumpets that are blown, and then there will be seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And that continues through chapter 16. So we could summarize Revelation 4 through 16 with the phrase, the throne and the judgments. And then we we hit this phrase again in Revelation chapter 17 in verse 3. And what John introduces us to there is the harlot, the the woman Babylon, who is the mother of prostitutes. And, And so you see the harlot in Revelation 17 and then her downfall in chapter 18. And then the king comes in Revelation 19. And, and then after the description of the king and the setting up of his kingdom through chapter 21, in chapter 21, verse 10, we run into this phrase again. And what happens from that point is the bride descends from heaven. So we could summarize Revelation 17 through 22 with the phrase the harlot, the king, and the bride. That's the whole book of Revelation. Jesus and the letters in chapters 1 through 3, the throne and the judgments in chapters 4 through 16, and then the harlot, the king, and the bride at the end of the book. John tells us, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Thrones, in John's day, communicated authority and righteous judgment. You see this from Revelation 20. When after the final rebellion of Satan, after the millennial kingdom, the great white throne of judgment is set up and the books are opened. So this is a scary image. The throne of God's authority and judgment is set up. And and then what John is about to give us here in the verses that follow is one of the fullest descriptions of God on his throne in the Bible. You think about the whole Bible. You don't have that many depictions of God on the throne. This is one of the few. And this is one of the most descriptive presentations of the Father on the throne. So John tells us here at the end of verse 2 that he saw the thrones that stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now in his description, John is not going to enter into intricate details. It is detailed and it is full, but it's not irreverent. It's not as though John is acting as though you can just march right up and start telling everyone what the Father looks like. No, he's, he's circumspect and, and, and he's, a, he's preserving appropriate distance between himself and God the Father. And, and there's a fear of the Lord that is evident even in this description of God on the throne. So John tells us there in verse 3, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, as you try to imagine this, I would encourage you to let your imagination run wild. We're talking about God the Father seated on the throne in the heavenly courtroom here. Your, Your 
attempt to conceive these colors will not be too vivid. And, and your attempt to allot the space for the throne and the surrounds will not be too large. You will not outdo what John is depicting. These, these uh, stones, jasper and carnelian, are semi-translucent stones, which means you can't really see through them, though they do allow light to pass through. And, and they usually are a yellowish to a rust-colored reddish-brown kind of hue. So you, you can imagine perhaps yellow and, and reddish-brown and, and, and perhaps even darker brown uh, shades of light that are just emanating out from the throne of God. And, and John can't quite see through them, but he can see the source of the light that radiates out from the throne. And then there's enormous comfort at the end of verse 3. You see, the, the throne is a symbol of judgment and authority. And, and if you're a sinner, a, sin, a symbol of judgment and authority is not a comforting sight. But if you're a sinner... And the throne that communicates judgment and authority is surrounded by an emerald rainbow. That rainbow, for any biblically literate person, knows I've got a rainbow at the flood. And that rainbow is about God's mercy. So this this emerald greenish rainbow is now complementing these yellow and reddish brown hues that are emanating out. And it's saying that for those who will repent of their sins... And John doesn't make it explicit here, but he's already told us earlier in the book, and he'll show us in chapter 5, those who trust in the Lamb who was slain, who was raised for our justification, who has conquered sin and death, those who hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, they'll find mercy. That throne won't be a symbol of you're going to be destroyed under the wrath of God. The rainbow is what you can lock onto and know he's going to forgive me. He's going to save me. So John sees the throne and the one seated there and the light is emanating out. And what we have in verse 4 and following are these concentric rings of praise. It's almost as though we have waves of worship that are just flowing outward from the throne. And so John is going to start in verse 4 telling us about these 24 thrones. And, And seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Now, it's difficult to know exactly who these elders are, but because of the way that elders are are described throughout the the rest of the book of Revelation, I'm inclined to think that these are heavenly beings. These are angelic uh, elders who stand before God as members of the heavenly court as opposed to them being humans who have died and are now present with God in heaven. And the reason I think that is because every time you encounter these elders across the book of Revelation, they're always with other heavenly beings. They're always with other members of the heavenly court. And so I think these are angelic elders. There are probably 24 because they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And these elders are testifying to us. They're testifying to us by the way that they're presented. And, and in order to see what they're testifying, we have to remember what Jesus has promised to those who overcome in chapters 2 and 3. You see, Jesus, again and again, at the end of each, se- each of the seven letters, Jesus said to those who overcome, I will give, and then he promised 
that, that he would reward those who overcame. And among the things he promised were white garments with which to clothe themselves and golden crowns for their heads. And what we see here in Revelation chapter 4 verse 4 is that the 24 elders are clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And what that says is God is able to keep His promises. God is able to keep His promises. Have you noticed that sin never keeps its promises? Sin sin has promised you relief, it's promised you comfort, it's promised you pleasure, it's promised you standing, it's promised you all kinds of things, and it's never come through. God will keep His promises. God will reward those faithful to Him. What we need to do as as we fight against temptation is we need to lock onto these images and we need to meditate on these images until we become convinced what God offers me is better than what I will gain if I succumb to this temptation. What God promises to me is worth more than the temporary relief this sinful pleasure might bring. And then we need to stand or flee as the case may be. So the 24 elders are there, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And then in verse 5 we see that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. These are not weak flashes or soft growls of thunder. These are those thunderclaps that make the children cry and that maybe make you shift uneasily in your seat. These are thunderclaps that are going to get your attention. The, these, these rumblings and peals of thunder and the lightning. This is reminiscent of Exodus 19 when God the Father came down on Mount Sinai and spoke the ten words to Israel. Those ten words by which they would be evaluated, by which they were to live. And, and what's interesting about John's presentation here is that at the end of each set of seven judgments, at the end of the seven seals, at the end of the seven trumpets, at the end of the seven bowls of wrath, we see this again. So if you look at Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, and He he tells us what ensued, and then in verse 5, at the end of that verse, He says, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And then in chapter 11, verse 15, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and he tells us what resulted from that. And then at the end of verse 19, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. And then in chapter 16, Revelation 16, 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And in verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 18, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. The occurrence of the rumblings and lightnings and peals of thunder at the end of each set of seven ties those judgments back to the throne of God. It, it, it takes our minds back to the rumblings and the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder that John saw in Revelation chapter 4 verse 5. And it communicates an important truth to us. It says to us, the judgments that fall upon the world are not abstract outworkings of impersonal forces 
the judgments that fall upon the world are the personal wrath of God being visited upon the world. I, I don't know if you, if you think about it this way, but God is personally offended by sin. You think about how you react when maybe you have an employee under you and you tell them, you give them some instructions and they act like you don't exist. That's an affront. Or, or maybe you, you say to your children, this is the way I want you to do this or this is what I don't want you to do. And, they, and they, they take a look at you and then they just go on and do whatever they want to do. It's offensive. It's offensive. They're saying, you don't matter. I can live as though you don't even exist. Now multiply that by infinity and by absolute holiness. And you have the righteous indignation of God against human sin. The judgments in this book are awful and they are personal visitations of God's wrath. John says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And then he continues in verse 5. He says, Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God, this is one of the ways in the book of Revelation that John describes the Holy Spirit. So, so you've got the throne of the Father, and then you've got the Holy Spirit there before the throne. And then in verse 6, John says, Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And this sea of glass is probably what was represented by the great bronze sea that Solomon made for the, 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 the temple that was filled with water. And, and so now you've got a sea of glass. And also in Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel had this, this vision of God seated on the throne, there's this, this firmament or expanse that's between the throne of God and everything else. And the crystal sea is saying God is transcendent. Yes, the 24 elders are around the throne, but there's a, a sea of glass clear as crystal between God the Father and the Holy Spirit there at the throne and everyone else. He is, he is above and distinct from His creation. In chapter 5, in verse 6, John is going to say, between the throne, you might even translate that first phrase of verse 6, something like, on the throne. And he's going to see a lamb standing as though it had been slain, which completes the Trinitarian picture of Revelation 4 and 5, where you have God the Father on the throne and the seven spirits before the throne, and then the lamb standing as though slain comes into the picture. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the middle of Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, John begins to describe those who surround the throne. And it seems that these, this is an inner circle uh, closer to the throne than the 24 elders. So we see here in verse 6, around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. And each of these four living creatures has experienced, it, it appears, something like what we want to experience. See, these creatures are always before God the Father, worshiping Him day and night. And, and what seems to have happened is they have begun to reflect aspects of God's glory. So, so we humans, we become what we worship. We, 
Psalm 115 says, those who make idols become like those idols. And 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, at the end of chapter 3, end of chapter 4, Paul says that those who worship Jesus, those who behold His glory, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into His likeness. And so it seems that these four living creatures are reflecting for us aspects of the glory of God. So John also tells us there in verse, verse 6, that they're full of eyes in front and behind. We see a similar statement down in verse 8 when we, we see in verse 8 that they're full of eyes all around and within. We'll talk about this more when we get to verse 8. Here I just want to say I, I don't think that we should envision a lion or an ox or a man or an eagle, the four, the four likenesses that John sees, with eyeballs all over the surface of their exterior. I think the point of John saying that they are full of eyes in front and behind means that they don't miss anything. They see everything. Verse 7, the first living creature, like a lion. A lion is a universal symbol of royal dignity, the king of the beasts. So you can, you can imagine that this lion is strong and impressive and powerful, fast, Worthy to be respected and, and commanding due honor. And that's what God is like. God, God is like that majestic lion who's massive and, and ruling over the field. The second living creature is surprising. At least to me. I think this is surprising. The second living creature, like an ox. I'm not sure I would naturally, on my own, describe God as like an ox. But John does it. John, John saw something like an ox. And you know, this captures something surprising about God for us. Because like an ox, which has this slow, patient, massive strength that can be domesticated. Oxen in John's world were used to, to plow fields and things. God is a slow patient being of massive strength who's a servant isn't that surprising the god of the bible is a humble servant have you thought about it that way think think about how how much god serves you just in your being here today he's sustaining the the universe by the word of his power and and then the the ultimate expression of the humble service of god for humans is Jesus becoming man to be God's servant to to be killed in our place. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and and you're considering the claims of Christianity, I, I hope you hear from us that our God reigns. He's sovereign. He's in control. The Father is on that throne. But I hope you also hear that in distinction from every other religious expression, the God of the Bible is a humble servant who loves his people and, and who sacrifices himself in the person of Jesus for the benefit of those who will turn from their sin and trust him. You won't find a better God than this. You will not find a God more surprising to you, more loving, 
more worthy of your praise, more worthy of your trust. So, so I hope that John's depiction of God here, even with this living creature like an ox reflecting his glory, I hope this compels you to worship this God. There'll be people here at the front at the end of this service if you'd like to talk with someone about that. And, and it would bring us no greater joy than for you to want to know more about the God we love. The first living creature like a lion, verse 7. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. This is beautiful. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. I don't think this means that when we see God the Father, we will see a man. But, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus did say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and what's captured here with, with this living creature with the face of a man is the way that God is personal. And God really does relate to people. You really can know Him. He, he's not just a power out there that, that, that you can have no interaction with. He's personal. And, and also, in the face of a man, you've got something captured here that naturalistic evolution won't give you. You've got a spiritual dimension that, that the evolution of natural forces does not account for. There are things at work in this world that are beyond the mere material. And that's, that's captured here when this living creature has the face of a man. And if all these things seem to bring us close to God... We know what a lion is, and this living creature is like a lion. We know what an ox is, this living creature is like an ox. We know what people are, and this living creature has the face of a man. The fourth living creature seems to separate God from us, seems to bring us back to the reality of God's transcendence. So as we think about God's nearness, we also want to maintain He's also holy. He's separate and distinct. And that seems to be captured when John tells us that the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. There's this soaring transcendence whereby God is above and distinct from everything else in the world. And then verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And a moment ago, I said that what I think that means is they see everything. And what John is about to tell us is that like the 24 elders who are testifying to us that God keeps His promises, God gives the rewards, He's able to give the rewards that He promises to people, these guys are about to testify to us. Because these beings see everything. That's the point of them having eyes everywhere. They see it all. I don't see it all. I don't see all of the horrific atrocious abuse that takes place in this world on women and children. I don't see the horrible suffering that faithful people endure from cancer or disease. I don't see the wretched persecutions that that righteous people go through for clinging to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I don't see I don't see what you're going through. Maybe as you grieve a beloved child who is rejecting the gospel. These guys see it all. They see it all. And, and I can't give you answers for all the why questions. Why did that happen to my child? I can't answer all those questions. But what I can do is I can say, these guys see it all and they're testifying here. 
And, and what they're saying in response to everything they see is not, where is God? Or why? That's not what they're saying, is it? They see it all. And included in what they see is the way that God will bring about a resolution. The way that God, we believe, we trust, God will make it so that whatever you've been through is worth it. It's worth it because of the display of glory that results from it. And I think it's in response to all that they see and all that they know about how this this deep and wide foundation of judgment and woe is being built so that a soaring tower of mercy to the display of God can be erected upon that foundation. And so they respond to all this day and night, Revelation 4, 8. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And my question for you is, can you trust them? They see it all. Can you trust them? And, and my encouragement for you, if the suffering hasn't started for you yet, you can count on it. I, I don't know what form it's going to take, but we're all going to suffer. We're, we're all going to have loved ones die. This is a broken world. It's coming. So what you want to do is you want to lock into this right now before it comes. You, you want to get your arms around the truth that God is holy and that somehow it's all going to be worth it and you can Trust Him. And the praise of these who see all ignites more praise. Look at verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks. Let's think for a moment about those, those words. Glory and honor and thanks. And I just want to focus in on the last one. And and. I've been so encouraged by the gratitude that has been communicated to me here at College Park Church. So all I'm saying to you is excel still more in this. Excel still more in rendering thanks to God. And I want to add to that 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 the weeds of lust and discontent and greed and envy and all of those awful manifestations of our wicked hearts, those weeds don't thrive in grateful hearts. So if we will cultivate gratitude, it will help us to fight against sin. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. The worship of those inside leads to the worship of those who are farther out. This is the way it works, isn't it? I have observed the way that as your pastors have responded this weekend to what I've tried to do as as I've tried to, to, to teach God's Word, your pastors have led the way in giving thanks to God and in, in gratefully and enthusiastically receiving the Word of God. And that has been tremendously encouraging to me. And I would encourage you to cultivate that. Be a person. Yesterday, I had the privilege, I was standing by your pastor, Pastor Mark, the senior pastor. And, and he was worshiping in such a way that I was swept up in it with him. It made me want to be more enthusiastic in my praise of God because of my proximity to him. That's the kind of person you want to be. You want to be somebody that when others get around you, they, they're more grateful. They're, they're, 
They're more tuned in to God's goodness. The four living creatures join in the praise and look what they do with their crowns in verse 10. They cast their crowns before the throne. We want, we want to be people who are acquiring things now that we will use for the worship of God then. I'm I'm saying I don't think those elders are necessarily humans who have conquered and triumphed and received what was promised, but it was crowns that are promised, and I think we're going to do with the crowns that we receive what they do with the crowns that they've received. So we want to live now so that we will have more with which to praise God then. They cast their crowns before the throne saying. Now pay close attention to what they say as they praise God. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You know, not everybody's worthy to receive power. There's that statement about how power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know the the cliché. God is worthy to receive power. He will never abuse the power that he receives. And, and so if you're, if you're considering Christianity, we want to say to you, come on in. He, he will not abuse the power. He's worthy to receive power. These who are members of his heavenly court are saying he's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And here's the reason in verse 11. For you created all things... And by your will, they existed and were created. Everything in the world exists because God made it. There is nothing that has entered into the world that God made that God did not allow into the world that he made. He is sovereign over it all. He is the supreme governor and providential sustainer of the universe. And these are praising God. For all that he's made. In chapter 5, as the worship continues, Jesus will come in to the scene. And down in verse 9, they will begin to praise Jesus, saying, Worthy are you, and among the reasons, is for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is, this is not a religion that's just for certain kinds of people. This is a God who is for all kinds of people, of all colors of skin, of all backgrounds and ethnicities and places of origin. This God is worthy of worship from all whom he has made. This weekend, we have been thinking about the big, the big plan of the Bible, the big scope of the whole Bible. And, and if you were here, you know that, that I set out a, a kind of memory palace by which you could remember uh, the, the, the five sessions that we had together. And so maybe if, if you're here, you remember what we encountered when we entered into the foyer of the home. The, yeah, pr- professional mice who are, scu- who are sculpting an, an ice, for the pro- ice sculpture for the prom. So we've got a promise there. And we talked about Genesis 3.15 and how that promise is developed across the pages of Scripture. The promise of a redeemer, the seed of the woman who would conquer Jesus. And then we went into the, the uh, formal living room. And in the formal living room, we found red imps who were forming a pattern. And these red imps with bad breath and screechy voices were, were, were reminding us of the pattern of 
redemption. And we considered in our second session together how there's this exodus pattern that is, that is set down in, in the book of Exodus, previewed in the life of Abraham, and then that pattern is used across the Bible to describe how God's going to save his people. And then we moved into the family room, and we found in the family room... Exile. Yeah, we found an ex walkway, an exile. It was all overgrown. And that's to remind us of the exile and return from exile. We were exiled from Eden. Israel was exiled from the land. There's been a return to the land, but we're still looking for the return to Eden. But Jesus has opened the way to that through his death and resurrection. And then we entered into the kitchen and on the kitchen counter, there was a Wedding cake, that's exactly right. And the wedding cake reminds us of the way that God's covenant with his people is treated in the Bible as a marriage, which is impress, impresses upon us the importance of our own marriages and, and our cultivation of marriages that reflect Christ's love for the church. And then we enter into the formal living room, and in the formal living room we found water water covering the ground and our socks got wet and our feet got feet got cold and this was to remind us of the way that god is going to cover the dry lands with his glory as the waters cover the seas set in vast realms of space across an untold time the sprawling story he creates sings the song sublime the music pure made matter hard the words became the real What is was built by his mere word. The worlds, the words do feel. A garden sprang up from the song, replete with sacred tree. The sounds had no notes in them wrong, though people there were free. So when they chose to disobey, transgress God's holy word, the judgment wrought a disarray, unsheathing death's sharp sword. He sang again in Egypt land, his people to redeem. By outstretched arm and his strong hand, the Lord made freedom ring. At Sinai, ten words Yahweh spoke. The people ate and played. At Sinai, tablets Moses broke when golden calf was made. In mercy wide, with steadfast love, the Lord, He made a way. Through trackless waste, bread from above, water from rock He gave. Like Adam, then the people sinned, transgressed the holy word, forsook their faithful only friend, the Lord, their shepherd. Like Adam, then, from the land Israel was driven with consequences of command. Asunder they were riven. The covenant was broken. The marriage bond no more. Yet the Lord had spoken of hope beyond death's door. And then the bridegroom came, prophesied of old. Then heard the deaf and walked the lame. And word was spoken bold. To kill him, his own people sought. The murderer went free. Salvation on the tree was wrought. Mysterious to see. While they meant evil, God meant good. A remnant He would save. In whose place condemned He stood. Then rose up from the grave. And someday soon He'll split the skies. The trumpet call resound. From their graves the dead will rise. At white throne gather round. Wheat from chaff, sheep from goats. The Lord will separate. Those who made the cross their boast who sought the narrow gate, will on that day reward receive who claimed Christ as their Lord, who in Him with their 
whole heart believed, clinging to His Word. And glory bright and glory fair will cover the dry lands, full as heavens are with air or deserts are with sands. The Lord will have His way on earth. His kingdom He will bring. So through the pangs of this childbirth, in faith and hope, we sing. Father, would You keep us faithful to the day? Would You convince us that Your glory will indeed cover the dry lands as the waters cover the sea? Would You cause us to heed the testimony of the four living creatures and believe that there is reason to cry, Holy, 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 even in our deepest woe? And Father, would You make us those who receive what has been promised that we might cast our crowns at Your feet In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.